This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Another indictment has been made against Donald Trump. America's electronic networks have been infiltrated. Europeans and Muslims, one and the same, or friends, or enemies. And the trumpet panel has been looking to the stars. All this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, August 4th. I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia Trumpet Writers in our studio here in Edmond, Oklahoma, our Andrew Miller. Hello. As well as Josue Michels. Hello. At our studio in England is Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, we are joined by Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. I mentioned Andrew Miller first, and Andrew, you'll go first this week with your update. You watch the Anglo-America region. Yeah, this week in the Anglo-American region, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that he's separating from his wife. The Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States rescued more than 200 human trafficking victims. And a new Gallup poll shows that belief in the devil has hit a all-time low in American history. That's an interesting one that we'll need to follow up on in the future. What is the biggest story from Anglo-America? <laughs> <laughs> the biggest story, and it's it's one of these stories that it's it's huge and it's a historical context, but it's almost getting to be like a weekly occurrence in America, is um, Donald Trump was indicted uh, for the second time in three months. Special Counsel Jack Smith, he uh, we talked about this on the program a couple weeks ago, but he had was sent him a letter saying he was under investigation. Uh, he has now actually formally indicted him. Well, for basically for questioning the results of the 2020 election, this is in uh, regards to the January 6th uh, insurrection probe. Uh, they're accusing Trump of stirring up violence at that probe. And so basically took the unprecedented step of indicting a former president uh, and the um, chief Republican candidate for the upcoming presidential election for repeatedly expressing his opinion that the last election was rigged, stolen, or unfair. Uh, they're trying to, because uh, I think some of the, I saw one news article that like the, the last indictment, he, he was like, the maximum charge was like 103 years in prison. I actually think this one, they're actually trying to do like, like a maximum charge of uh, the death penalty. Uh, so they're going whole hog, and uh, we've actually got a video clip here. It's from uh, Rachel Maddow uh, showing really kind of the, uh, the angle that the, the radical left is trying to paint this narrative with. When you at home have a chance to read this thing, um, and you should, just to page through it when you have a quiet moment. Trust me, you have read things longer than 45 pages. This is double spaced. You'll get through it. If you have a quiet moment to read this, and I hope you do, if you are like me, I think the thing that will jump out at you is the violence. Not descriptions of violence on January 6th, but the way Trump and his alleged co-conspirators talked about how violence was going to be part of this. How that was factored in to this alleged conspiracy in a, in a way that these folks seem to expect. They're not charged with riot. They're not charged with sedition. They are charged with exploiting the disturbance 
that they apparently, allegedly, intentionally caused. They knew to count on violence. They factored it into their planning. That comes out in the indictment in a way that will keep you up. So yeah, as you just heard in that narrative there, it's, it's basically saying that uh, Trump was trying to stir up the type of violence that will keep you up at night, um, like violence that's going to overthrow the republic, and now trying to bring formal indictments and formal charges to bring him into court from. Although, as uh, numerous people have pointed out uh, in the past, uh, including Joe Rogan this week, um, uh, who's Joe Rogan's a popular podcaster in the United States, uh, kind of a socialist, uh, liberal in a lot of ways, so he's not your typical make America great again conservative. Uh, but even he is saying that it, the January 6th protest that Trump's being indicted for was actually a false flag against Trump, where it was CIA agents and FBI agents stirring up the violence, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because there were a 100 uh, Congress people ready to protest the vote on January 6th. Every time a congressperson protests it, it's two hours of debate. Uh, 100 protests, that would be 200 hours of debate. Um, giving states and journalists more time to investigate the election fraud. And so the, the radical left, the deep state, the Central Intelligence Agency, the, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, they didn't want these uh, investigations to keep going. They didn't want these 200 hours of debate. And so by planting people in the, in the crowd and stirring up violence, they just shut the whole thing down. Uh, everyone that, uh, that looked like they were even close to the violence could be arrested. Uh, that debate never happened. And so there was a number of people who made the observation, as I said, really, Donald Trump, he's being accused of trying to overturn the election, but his only hope of actually having the election overturned was to have the protest remain peaceful. Uh, and so to claim that Trump was <laughs> the Trump was stirring up for the uh, violence there. There's a my Latin legal terms are bad. There's a there's a phrase for that. It's like quibano. It's like who benefits? They're like Donald Trump does not benefit from stirring up violence at this. The the deep state benefits from stirring up violence at this, which means that Donald Trump is either uh, very stupid, um, which is not true. His IQ is like in the 140s or something crazy like that. Like I said, yeah, he's a victim of a false flag. Uh, and so now that they're using, and now they have that false flag, uh, which they used to steal the lax election, they can now use an indictment for the false flag <laughs> in order to try to steal the next election. So the, the January 6th, it's just the gift that keeps on giving for the, the radical left, really. So I was um, going to uh, advertise America under attack in the show notes and talk about Second Kings 14 verses 26 through 28. Uh, but since I do that every week, uh, I... <laughs> I thought I'd mix it up here a little bit and actually advertise uh, another article. It's not a book, but an article from our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry called America's Broken Judgment that focuses more in on uh, another prophecy in Micah 3, verses 1 through 3. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and you princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good, who love the evil, who pluck off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and fillet their skins off from them and break their bones and chop them into pieces as for the pot and as for the flesh within the cauldron. Uh, pretty grisly metaphor there about like human cannibalism, like chopping up people and cooking it in a cauldron. But it's 
specific to judgment in end time Israel, or basically the judiciary in end time Israel, the court system in uh, in America and Britain. In that article, America's a Broken Judgment, and it talks about like there were uh, at least 60 cases uh, brought against election fraud between the November uh, 2020 election and the January 6th um, insurrection, and they were all thrown out of court. And just so just the deep bias in the justice system. And uh, you know, maybe we'll need to update something, some of that at some point, because it's uh, you definitely see that even more with these indictments against Trump. Like I said, this is the third indictment in, um, in two months. Uh, none of them really carry any legal water. Um, there was the hush money payment um, that hasn't really gone anywhere. Uh, there was the classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, which hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, and now this one might be the worst yet, uh, trying to basically charge Trump with felonies for exercising his First Amendment rights to express his opinion that an election was stolen. Um, but the, uh, the, yeah, the judgment's just broken. And the way they're treating Donald Trump and his supporters in the Make America Great Again movement uh uh, metaphorically isn't very different from just like chopping these people up and throwing their flesh in a cauldron. How is belief in an actual real evil spirit being at an all time low? <laughs> Going back to that Gallup poll you mentioned, only 58% of American adults acknowledging that there must be a devil. Why else would America be doing so many anti-American things? Why else would human beings, period, be doing so many anti-human things i mean there is a devil be logical uh americans america's broken judgment shows uh some of that uh that there is something unusual and powerful and anti-human going on in american governance and i'll be the one this week to commend america under attack uh, to our listeners again this week partially based on what you've said here but mainly based on an absolute bomb of an article uh, not on the trumpet.com, actually, tabletmag.com. It's called the tablet. Uh, tabletmag.com has uh, published this week the Obama factor. And I would really recommend our listeners look at that. It's a very long article. And uh, some of it's uh, irrelevant, but go through that and compare that to America under attack, americaunderattack.com. Uh, compare that with this article, The Obama Factor, and you'll find things that Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote a decade ago are being verified line by line by line in this article. If you haven't read it, make sure to read it, The Obama Factor, and be sure to compare it to America Under Attack, americaundertack.com. So next we'll look at the region of Asia, Jeremiah Jacques usually covers that for us, but uh, Josue Michels has been kind enough and capable enough to stand in for him. Josue, give us a little rundown of the uh, the main stories in Asia. Yeah, there are quite a few interesting ones, usually from Asia. For example, the digital ruble is now in circulation in Russia. It will be a new form of Russian national currency, more specifically a central bank digital currency. This week, on August 3rd, the Bank of Russia's Board of Directors announced approval of the digital ruble logo. China and many other countries are already working on their version of a digital currency. 
This may help avoid sanction, but it also could be a tool to undermine and even overthrow the dollar. We have also seen insane levels of flooding in China and Russian officials bragging about having taken in about 4.8 million residents of Ukraine since February 2022, the start of the invasion, including over 700,000 children. So I guess what they are saying is that they are the biggest helper for Ukraine today. There were also new revelations that TikTok is in fact propagating Chinese propaganda in the West. And TikTok is not the only thing that China has been up to, particularly this week. What's the uh, the main story you have here uh, regards China? Yes, there have been many revelations about China. And one that has been going on for quite a few years now has been found some more specific revelations here. China has inserted secretly, of course, malicious computer code deep within networks that control America's power grids water supplies, and military communications. The New York Times made this public on July 29th, citing the United States officials. What the Chinese hackers have done is use code called WebShell that can grant remote access to servers. Analysts say the strategy could enable disruption of U.S. military deployments and resupply operations at a future time of the hackers. So they're warning that America could be shut down by hackers any moment. China is steadfast and determined to penetrate America's governments, America's companies, and America's critical infrastructure. And this is something that uh, for a lot of our listeners will remind them of what's been said by uh, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry repeatedly in the past. Yes, it's quite remarkable because almost 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, Mr. Flurry has warned about this, this exact scenario. For example, in our January 1995 issue, he wrote, America is the greatest superpower this world has ever known, but we have a very vulnerable point in our military, our own Achilles heel. It is so dangerous that I'm amazed it hasn't received more publicity, end of quote. And of course, almost three decades later, it does. But Mr. Flurry points to Ezekiel 7 in this context. So the first three verses of this chapter shows that God is addressing the land of Israel in the end time, which means mainly the United States and Britain. Ezekiel 7 describes a future time when God will punish these nations, for their abominations and their rejection of his law and authority. Verse 14 describes one aspect of that punishment. Quote, they have blown the trumpet, even to make all ready, but none goes to the battle. For my wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. A cyber attack could lead to this exact outcome. Jeremiah Jack actually has written an article about this exact scenario, and in the context of China, his article is called China Hacks America and None Goes to Battle. That was China Hacks America and, quote, none goes to battle. So the Philadelphia Trumpet has been watching for more than 30 years, for about 90 years, if you count our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, for there to be a situation where none goes to battle. And 
that is one reason why we watch very closely uh, the U.S. military and the U.S. economy, really, its reliance on its computer systems and how that that powerful tool uh, can be shut down. So again, that was China Hacks America and None Goes to Battle. Thank you, Josue. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Mihailo Zekic watches the Middle East region for us. Right now he's in Jerusalem before uh, returning to the to our offices in England where Mr. Palmer is. Mihailo, you've been watching the Middle East this week. Give us a rundown of the main stories you've been looking at. Well, this has been quite a busy week for the Middle East North Africa region. We talked about the coup uh, in Niger last week. Looks like there's been a development in that on Sunday, the economic community of West African states, which includes countries like Nigeria, Chad, and Niger, and don't be fooled by the name, it's also political grouping. Um, Well, anyway, the organization gave an ultimatum to the military regime in Niger now saying, uh, either you uh, give authority back to the legitimate president or we're going to be intervening. uh, And the deadline for that ultimatum is to be this Sunday. So we'll see what comes up with that. We've talked before about how Russia has been involved in this coup a little bit. This could have this could end up backfiring Russia, starting a wider war that they maybe didn't want. Um, also on Wednesday, Mohammed Eslami, who is the head of Iran's atomic energy organization, just announced that Iran will now establish atomic energy schools for elementary school age children. Um, we've talked on this program quite a bit about Iran's nuclear program and this march towards a nuclear weapon. Apparently, the government there doesn't want to exclude children from that, which is a little bit, uh, do I say, chilling to say the least. Uh, And then finally, on Monday, Israel's Supreme Court announced that all 15 judges will be looking at uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, reasonableness bill before they said it was going to have a preliminary hearing with one judge in September and then all 15 would uh, potentially weigh in depending on what that one judge would say now they're uh, going straight for uh, uh straight for the jugular so i think it's no illusion on at least what most supreme court justices in israel want to do with this bill so we'll uh, be, uh, be sure to keep up on that so one one might assume that when they're challenged uh, with their ability to use the reasonable doctrine that they'll say, well, sorry, that's not reasonable. <laughs> uh, but real quick on the um, the situation in West Africa, Mr. Palmer mentioned last week about uh, the turmoil there. Is, is it getting uh, kind of out of hand there in North and West Africa? It, it seems like we're not hearing as much about it as we should. And it seems like uh, with this threat for military intervention, um, is uh, how would you compare the turmoil in North and West Africa right now to how it's been over the past you know year or two? Well, I mean, the current president of Niger, Mohamed Bazoum, he's considered the first democratically elected leader in that country's history. So, I mean, no surprise. It's not like West Africa, North Africa is that uh, unused to coups and revolutions and whatever. Um, that these countries would be intervening would be a significant step normally 
countries like Mali, for example, that have had problems, they'll uh, rely on outside help, like peacekeepers from the U.S., from Europe. Um, obviously, the other countries aren't immune from that. But for countries to potentially be launching an invasion of their next-door neighbor, that's pretty significant. The big thing to watch with that would be what would happen with Russia. Um, a lot of analysts think that maybe... Well, well, Wagner Group is definitely involved with this, and a lot of analysts think that maybe this was Wagner Group's backup plan in case if they had a falling out with Putin like we've seen over the last little while to maybe stay on their good side. If this ends up uh, not bringing a new ally to Russia and instead sucking them into a, a, a far-up war that they didn't want to get involved in or botching it in some other way, this could spell a bigger end for Wagner, but we'll have to stay tuned and see. You also mentioned Iranian children being taught and indoctrinated with nuclear curriculum. I know the uh, nuclear development and and the effects of the nuclear bomb and the nuclear age have been uh, popular subjects recently because of a a recent movie. Uh, And when we look at the Middle East, we mainly watch Iran. So what else is going on with Iran right now? Yes. So um, this week... Uh, there was an interesting visitor that came over to Tehran. He was the defense minister for Belarus, Viktor Krenin. Now, Belarus is this isolated pariah state um, in northeastern Europe. It's landlocked. It doesn't really have many dogs in the fight in the Middle East, per se. Iran's also an isolated pariah state, but the two are far away. Two technically stand for different things. What's going on here? Well, he came to create new defense partnerships with Iran in various cities. He met different uh, politicians there. He met on July 31st, Iran's defense minister, Mohammad Reza Ashtiani, and they've announced, they've signed, uh, well, those two defense ministers together, they signed a memorandum of understanding. What exactly is in that memorandum isn't public yet, but the uh, Research Institute Critical Threats Project claims they have uh, insider information that it may involve Iran constructing a suicide drone factory in Belarus. These have obviously been uh, imported quite a bit by Russia in their war with Ukraine, and Belarus is, for all intents and purposes, a Russian satellite state. So one way or another, it revolves around Ukraine and Russia's support of of obviously what it's doing and Belarus's uh, support, if for no other reason, because they have to, of what Russia is doing. The next day, on August 1st, Krenin met Iran's Armed Forces General Chief of Staff, Mohammed Bagheri, and they've discussed about conducting joint military exercises, establishing military attaches in each other's countries, and even a Belarus-Iran Military Cooperation Commission. So, considering these two countries normally, aside from the Ukraine war, don't really have much in common, uh, this is pretty high-level discussions that are going on between these two countries. So give our listeners a memorandum of understanding, if you will. So Iran is working with Russia. Uh, the Iranian military is working with the Russian military during wartime. How do we understand this, and where is it going? Well... I mean, Iran doesn't really care what happens in Ukraine. They'd like to see the West lose. They'd like to see Europe and America look bad in this proxy war they're going in. They're not concerned about, you know, righting historical wrongs against the mighty Russian Empire or, or, or anything like that. The only reason they're in Ukraine is to attack the West. 
At this point, it's mainly been assisting Russia from the Russian side of the conflict zone with suicide drones, with shipping in supplies, things like that. If they start establishing a presence in Belarus, Belarus is way further to the rest than, or to the west, I mean, than where the front line for the war is. You can drive from Warsaw, Poland to the border of Belarus in just three hours. That's a major European city that, you know, the Europe and Iran have obviously not been friends for a long time, but Iran is all the way on the other side of the Middle East. Sure, they sponsor terror attacks or that kind of thing, but it's not like Iran to this point could pose a direct military threat to Europe. With Belarus, who knows? This might be changing. Who knows what was in that memorandum? Who knows what military cooperation commission means? Will we soon start soon start seeing Iranian troops in Belarus or spying stations or Belarus helping smuggle Iranian def defense intelligence into Europe? Again, it remains to be seen how exactly this will play out. But this is a huge provocation for Europe. And I'm it'd be very, very naive to say the least if Europe wasn't paying attention to this and adjusting its plans accordingly. Here's a clip from a uh, speech a European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen gave uh, about six months ago about the war in Ukraine and in Iran's involvement. Just a few snippets of it. We will extend these sanctions to those who militarily support Russia's war, <clears throat> such as Belarus or Iran, and, of course, there's the topic to boost European defense capabilities as laid out in the strategic compass. For that, we all know that now we need to ramp up the production capacity of our defense industry, and we need to coordinate the replenishment of military equipment. So as you can see here, um, obviously we just played a few snippets there, but Europe is looking at what Iran is doing in Russia and linking it to one and the same. It, the Ukraine war is scaring Europe and Iran's involvement in the Ukraine war is scaring Europe is causing Europe to militarize. It's causing Europe to put more trust in itself and its own armed forces to deal with these problems they didn't have to worry about. Now, if you want to go what the Bible says about this, a prophecy we go to often is Daniel 11 verse 40 talks about uh, Europe and radical Islam led by Iran under the names of the king of the north and the king of the south heading for a clash. The rest of the prophecy, the context says this will start World War III. And it specifically says the king of the south or Iran will push at Europe. That word push could mean to butt with horns like with animals. In other words, to provoke. It will go out of its way to really hurt Europe. We're seeing this with Iran getting involved in countries as far away and seemingly uninvolved in the Middle East as Belarus. Again, we'll see how exactly this all plays out, but we're seeing more and more of these kinds of push-ins, and not just militarily, but in many other realms. And eventually it's going to reach a breaking point, and Europe's going to be forced to take matters into its own hands and go after Iran itself. You mentioned the article, Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. That's Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. And that's on the trumpet.com in the trends section. Go to the trumpet.com slash trends. Thank you, Mihailo. Now let's go to our next region, which is Europe. Uh, Mr. Palmer, what's been going on in Europe? We've had a little bit of drama at the Poland-Belarus border this week. There are a couple of uh, allegedly Belarusian helicopters that crossed over into Polish and therefore NATO airspace. Uh, Poland has responded by ramping up troops at its border. Uh, and you've got to remember, Poland is in the midst of a 
an astonishing military turnaround. They're in the process of doubling the size of their army, creating the largest land force in Europe, buying about 1,300 new tanks. Uh, so you're seeing a rapid militarization of Europe's frontiers. Uh, and then Chi Europe's relationship with China and getting the balance right on that has been a fairly big thing in the news this week. So the Chinese vice premier met with the French finance minister last weekend, and they signed a whole bunch of trade deals. And then Italy is kind of in the process of pulling out of China's belt and road initiative because they're basically saying it's too one-sided. China's getting too much. And China has responded by trying to persuade Italy to stick around because they're a key European partner in this. So this is something we talk about a fair bit on this show, the European-Chinese relationship. This is something that is prophesied very specifically that you would have these two work together. But you, know, you look at those Bible prophecies and it's much more of an equal partnership. If anything, Europe is in the lead. Something like the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is something where China is very much in the driving seat. So I think a rebalancing where you know, Europe plays a a more equal role or a bigger role is is right in line with Bible prophecy. And I think that's what some of the events of this week point to. What would you have us focus on this week? So it's a bit of a, a, a running joke, I guess, going back several years that I tend to be a bit imperialistic on Europe's behalf on this show i'll claim the widest possible definition of europe at first that was the uh, just the geographic definition of europe there's a little bit of georgia that's technically part of europe then i realized that if you find define europe as being competing in the european the eurovision song contest then i can claim <laughs> israel and australia uh this week this week i am expanding europe's borders to one million miles beyond the planet earth <laughs> the European Space Agency this week successfully took their, their first pictures with their new Euclid Space Telescope. Uh, and I think this is a it's a telescope where the, the it is less impressive than the JWST. And if it were but if it weren't for the James Webb Space Telescope, I think this would be gigantic and, and everywhere. And you know, JWST stole its thunder, uh, but it does something very different. You know, if you're into photography or anything like that. If you're really into photography, you'll have multiple lenses. You know, you'll have a zoom lens so that if you're standing miles off or you know, the, the pitch has gone up into the outfield in baseball and you want to get that perfect photo of somebody catching it, you need a zoom lens. You want to get right up close and close to the action. That's what the James Webb Space Telescope is. It's a zoom lens for zooming in on those distant galaxies. But you don't always want a zoom lens. You know, if you're on top of a mountain and you've got this incredible view, if you're using a zoom lens, you're going to lose the vast majority of that view. What you want in that case is a wide angle lens. You want something that takes in a lot of the picture so you can kind of recreate what it's like to actually stand on that mountain when you pass it on to someone. And that's kind of what Euclid does. Uh, just like JWST, it's out there at a mind boggling distance from Earth. It's an incredible achievement, but it's there not to, to zoom in, but to get the panorama. And so the idea behind the Euclid Space Telescope is that it would create a 3D map of uh, some of the, it's looking at, I think, something like the nearest 10 billion galaxies to Earth. Um, only a, It can only see a certain region of the sky, but it's trying to map out all of these galaxies so that we can uh, see with precision exactly where they are. And so these images, they're, they're pretty early, you know, they're proof of concept, they're 
confirmation that yes this telescope is working after traveling a million miles and being launched at a ridiculous speed out of the uh, the earth's atmosphere but even so they're incredibly impressive they've got all of these these galaxies and its purpose is to be able to create a map of where all these galaxies are you know how far they are from earth how they are moving and the idea is if you can understand the dynamics of these of these galaxies well then you can start to understand things like how matter and mass is distributed throughout the universe well that's a big question because you know, dark matter is one of the big unexplained questions in modern physics uh you do most calculations you 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 use most ways that we have of estimating the size of galaxies and there seems to be more stuff there than we can see what's going on there and the people have tried all kinds of things well maybe our methods of estimating galaxy sizes are wrong uh or maybe there is stuff there that we can't see but if it's stuff that we can't see well what is it what is it made of uh so this is this is one of those big big unsolved problems that's one of the things that uh, that euclid is going to going to try and focus on uh and i think in the process it's going to produce some incredible panoramas for us showing a huge range of galaxies and 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 it already has with some of those first images well, isn't that interesting? Every week here on Trumpet Hour, we're looking into the the quibbling and the squabbling and the killing going on here on the surface uh, and forecasting where that quibbling and squabbling and killing is leading. And yet, uh, you bring us this uh, this uh, exhortation to look to look to the stars, so to speak. Uh, not only because you have an interest and an aptitude in physics, but also because Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has emphasized and even recently re-emphasized the importance of looking up to the stars. Yeah, that's right. We do. We absolutely do need to be looking up. And maybe it's something we need to, to look at trying to get on, on the, the week in review a bit more, perhaps. That's, it is, you know, yeah, you look at, if you get focused on what's going on down on the earth and you, know, you you look at even just the first story that we had about Donald Trump being indicted. It's aggravating, you know, to see people that believe that they can, you know, a, a double standard of law. There's half of America. Uh, you believe they can get a, break the law and then get away with it. And meanwhile, then just keep indicting Donald Trump again. And, and you, you focus on these stories and the other stories that you talk about. And, yeah, you just get frustrated. Um, but looking up gives us the big picture, not in terms of just space, but time that god has an incredible plan here that 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 at times we may feel aggravated with the news but god is in charge and even all of that news is going through a purpose is being worked out according to a purpose that ties in with what's up you know those stars and, and those galaxies that god is creating a level of character in man so that he can then you know give man the power to go out into the galaxies and go out into the universe uh, and there is just a, an incredible future and a, and, a, and a future that's just not understood by religions of this world, even, you know, something that's far more exciting than kind of just lazing around in heaven. I mean, that's maybe a bit glib, but, but it, it's still you know, something that's dramatically more exciting. There's a universe that requires dramatic renovation. Uh, and, you know, this is just one story this week. I think there were just so many, uh, space stories. I had an article I wrote up on Monday about, uh, there's a new estimate where they found that actually there might be a trillion more planets in this solar in this galaxy than we thought they were, and these are rogue planets sailing around in between stars. But that's just my—I hadn't really given much thought to, to rogue planets, but they think they might be more common than stars. 
uh, NASA has begun cooperation with DARPA on developing a nuclear space rocket. So we can uh, start exploring the galaxy more, or not? Well, not the galaxy. That's way too up. But the but the solar system more quickly. Maybe we'll get some more exciting discoveries from that. Uh, SpaceX launched the world's largest communications satellite that's ever been launched by a private company. Uh, JWST. We've had more news about black holes. We've had a picture of a white dwarf after a stellar explosion. There is a. We are getting a really good look at the universe, and it is important to to stop and look up. And you know, we have all of our booklets on world news that we talk about. We also have our awesome universe potential, which is a beautiful book in many ways. You know, physically, it is full of full color pictures of the universe. We've got some absolutely fantastic pictures from Hubble and things like that in there uh, that give you a picture of our future. But even then, just the 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 scriptures that it goes over the solid proof from the bible uh that connects your life and even the news that we're seeing with the universe and it's just one of the most inspiring and encouraging uh little booklets that we that we have that's our awesome universe potential this is something that is exciting we can we can hear it in your voice and uh here in here in edmond we recently just last night finished uh, the the 2023 session of summer educational program, the youth camp, and uh, the theme has been to look up to the stars, to look out into the universe. The theme was out of this world. Um, and last night, you know, after the awards ceremony and just uh, all the fun and and happiness and cheerfulness and and uh, a right kind of pride, I think, in our young people uh, that, that that entails. Um, when I went home, I actually uh, just kind of uh, laid back for a few minutes and looked up at the, at the stars. And uh, just speaking of being logical, somebody made that. Somebody made all those laws that, that all of those heavenly bodies uh, abide by. Um, somebody made this the the surface of the earth that we're all stuck to. Uh, so there is a creator clearly. It was clear last night, uh, and I saw that. Uh, just as there is a devil clearly, when you're looking at what's happening on the surface, uh, there's a universe requiring a creator, requiring, as you said, renovation. There's there's a hope in that. I used to I would tell some of my friends. I used to think, is there anything less practical than astronomy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, on an on a day to day basis, and I have exactly, totally, completely flipped uh, to the opposite view on on astronomy. It is so inspiring. It is so logical. It's so relevant, like you said, to your day to day uh, when you are getting bogged down in uh, what's happening, what we human beings are doing uh, to each other here on the surface. When we're denying the Creator, and when we're denying uh, the existence of of a devil. So that uh, booklet that you mentioned is just a wonderful uh, thing to read. Maybe some of our listeners haven't uh, read that or read that recently. It's our awesome universe potential and it's available at thetrumpet.com. Welcome to our final segment this hour as we complete the week in review. Welcome to our roundtable segment where we pick one topic and discuss it with our trumpet writers. We have Andrew Miller and Josue Michels here in the studio and online we have Richard Palmer and Mihailo Zekic. Mihailo, can you give us the the uh, who, what, when, and where on today's panel topic? On Monday, 
Salwan Mamika, who's a self-professed atheist uh, refugee from Iraq and Sweden, burnt uh, a Koran outside the Swedish parliament, the Riksdag. Now, I mean, there's obviously a lot of tensions between Muslim immigration and Europeans themselves in Europe. That's nothing new. But the problems that are surrounding this, and especially this man in particular, have been going on for the past month and a bit and have really caught the world's attention. This isn't the first time um, Mamika has done this. He burnt uh, another Quran outside of a mosque in Stockholm in June. And in July, he uh, desecrated another one outside the Iraqi embassy. Uh, this is obviously... I mean, if you're Muslim, that's obviously not supposed to be something nice, but in a Western democracy with liberal values, with protections of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, etc., this kind of thing is allowed and was green-lighted by the Swedish authorities. And the Muslim world in general has been really ballistic about it. Uh, in the days right after the first burning, uh, Morocco recalled its ambassador from Sweden, the United Arab Emirates, called its, uh, the Swedish ambassador in Abu Dhabi to go and es explain what's happened. A, a bunch of rioters tried to storm the Swedish embassy in Baghdad, but were uh, forced to leave really quickly. And then when the, oh, and also I forgot to mention Pakistan even called an emergency session of the United Nations Human Rights Council, where the council actually voted to condemn what Sweden was, was doing, or rather what Mika did, but putting the blame on the Swedish government. Um, on July 20th, in response to Momika saying he planned to burn a second one, which again, he, he didn't burn it per se, but he did wreck another Quran that week. Uh, the Baghdad rioters came back and this time they successfully pushed the Swedish uh, diplomatic corps out of the embassy and set it on fire. The Iraqi government said that they punished the arsonists, but said um, that if the Quran uh, burning or at least desecration took place, then they'd uh, tell the Swedish delegation basically to get out of Iraq. That the desecration happened and so that also followed and there's been a bit of a a back and forth uh shall we say tit for tat uh, escalation between people on the ground like mamika and the swedish government letting people like that uh, do those kinds of things and the muslim world basically from morocco to pakistan and most of it in between trying to jab at sweden wherever they can yes it was mentioned here that really has some international implications it's just not about burning of a Quran, which is worse enough in the eyes of muslims but you also have cultural tensions within europe and you have governments that need to respond either to the calls of those people that are burning the Quran, that are unhappy with what's happening in their country with immigration with growing muslim communities but those governments also look on their muslim communities that are also growing and they are increasingly angered by the response of some of the natives that really despise the religion of radical Islam. And you had many terrorist attacks that preceded some of these Quran burnings. But I want to focus on how will the Swedish government or other governments in Europe respond. Like in Sweden, free speech is a big thing. So should they ban the Quran burnings? That's what is being discussed right now. And what does that mean for the international community in Europe? What does it mean for Sweden's bid for joining NATO? How will Europe respond to a growing desire of the European people to address immigration 
to address radical Islam, to address what really is a destructive religion inside the European continent. That's the radical Islamic religion. So the European people are seeing it and now they're putting pressure on their governments to address this issue. And depending on how the governments respond, you can see really a big shift in Europe that will have international consequences. For example, Russia said, how can you let Sweden into Sweden into the NATO to alliance if they allow things like that? Isn't that really dangerous? Like we could start a world war with the Muslim communities inside Europe and with the Islamic countries around the world. So that's a really dangerous thing to do. If you let Sweden in, we could start a World War III with the Middle East. So Russia has a point here, you could say, but you can see how just a small thing like that, pushed by individual people in Europe, puts pressure on European governments, not just in Sweden, but others who will have to deal with similar issues and also with the whole international community. Josue, you mentioned there international consequences. It's a little rich for Russia to be commentating in that particular way. But uh, we do know a single match can ignite something huge. I'm thinking, of course, of the Arab Spring, which started with, uh, uh, well, ostensibly started with one man burning, uh, not a Quran, but himself uh, in Tunisia. And uh, and those protests spread, I mean, as far as big, widespread, effective uh, protests spread to Libya and Egypt and Yemen and Syria, uh, sorry, to Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, and Bahrain. And we had overthrows. We had governments fall uh, due to that spark. And as we know, a certain interference uh, using uh, the social media platforms and so forth. But... Uh, Europe might be a little less prone to to uh, an Arab Spring style series of revolutions, but uh, this is definitely becoming a major, uh, or it's definitely becoming something that won't go away. This this uh, this uh, attempt to just have this multicultural, um, uh, big happy family uh, with certain. Uh, factions that want to destroy and replace the multiculturalism. Uh, yes. Europe seems to be finding that it's not working. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't necessarily expect Quran burning to catch on in quite the same way as things caught on um, during the Arab Spring, like you said. But I think when you put this in context with all of the other Islam European stories that are going on uh you've got big topic in germany right now is do we need to put police security guards at every outdoor swimming pool because muslim, recent muslim migrants are attacking women and girls at these pools and it's becoming a political issue because newspapers are reluctant to talk about where these men are from it'll just be generic men uh then some political parties now are talking about this. So you, you know, you've got that going on in Germany. You've got Sweden, where just since 2015, uh, in Swedish inner cities have become dramatically more dangerous. You've had an uh, a, a re- outbreak of grenade attacks. You know, not the kind of thing that you associate with a Nordic, you know, a big Nordic city. Uh, and you've got. Uh, children being attacked in playgrounds uh, 
in France. Uh, you've had these churches being burned down. You had terrorist attacks after Charlie Hebdo, the, that magazine printed a cartoon of the of Muhammad. Uh, you've got since well, I think Pew estimated that between 2010 and then by 2030, you'll have a 30 percent increase in the number of Muslims in Europe. You've got the number of mosques in Denmark increasing 48 percent. So. You know, if you kind of expand the view beyond just Quran burning and look at all of these different points of tension between Islam and Christianity in Europe or, or Europe's prevailing secular culture, maybe, uh, you've certainly got a rise in friction. You've certainly certainly got a, an outbreak of uh, or hostilities between these two power blocks very possible. And one of the points, you know, Mihailo had an article on this on the website. One of the points in that article that I really liked is he, you know, he made the point that America killed Qassam Soleimani and Iran didn't do much. Sweden burns a Quran and they start, you know, they start going ballistic and threatening death threats and things like that. You know, the big lesson for Europe is if you stand up for yourself, Iran backs down. But if you give ground, they're going to keep coming after you. And I think certainly large segments of European population have gotten that message. They understand that. It's only a matter of time before governments understand that. And then you'll see a very different dynamic in Europe's response. And you'll see a Europe that stands up to itself in the face of all of these assaults and, and provocations. The other thing I think to watch is, and we've talked about some of these events, like calling the UN over one Quran burning. That's pretty, uh, like, like Mr. Palmer was saying, this kind of stuff wouldn't be happening if the Islamic world thought that Europe was going to do something about it. But it's one thing to condemn a country at the UN, and even the the uh, siege of the embassy at Baghdad. Obviously, that's pretty violent, but nobody died. People could start dying because of this. We could be seeing repercussions of this for a long time, especially coming from Iran. Uh, Momika is pretty brave uh, to be doing this so openly and uh, over and over again. Hossein Salami, who's the commander for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Iran, said that, he, 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 quote, they will play with all of his world for this uh, these actions. And he even threatened to send mujahids uh, or jihadists basically to reach politicians and stage managers behind these kinds of Quran brains. Well, we start seeing Swedish parliamentarians have their life threatened from Iran-backed terrorists. You think about last year when the famous author Salman Rushdie, who got himself in trouble with the Ayatollah in 1989, he finally got stabbed by one crazy guy who was contacted by the IRGC to go and try something like that. He, Mr. Rushdie, of course, is still alive, even though he lost an eye. But when it comes down to these little incidents, or at least what we would think little incidents, Iran could get extremely petty, and Iran could get extremely vindictive, and who knows, maybe Momika himself, I mean, I wish no ill will against him, but he may even become a martyr for this if Iran ends up going after him or hurting him, and he, he himself may become the symbol of free speech in Europe, and if anything happens to him, you could see a huge uh, reaction against the Muslim world from Europe. We are looking for, one way or another, a huge reaction indeed uh, by Europe against, uh, against Islam. Uh, Muslims in Europe, especially radical Muslims and especially clerics, 
there they do have strong connections back to the actual islamic nation states saudi arabia one but iran as well of course and and europe has has taken it uh repeatedly but you can see an appetite building for for basically a, a standing up for european culture standing up for european national culture and saying this is not working this integrating uh you know this uh trying to do what canada's doing and become a post post national europe uh, so to speak uh, europe is going to uh, revert to its culture and uh it's it's past culture has been very decidedly a catholic culture and that just does not mix with islam it just does not the 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 two cannot walk together for sure and we've seen Europe take steps, like Mr. Palmer said. Uh, I thought of also the some of the legislatures they're banning Islamic veils, uh, so that's taking a pretty strong uh, step against uh, this uh, ongoing massive incursion. So again, I would point you back to Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. That's uh, has some of our our best material on the Trumpet.com about this particular issue. And again, it's on the Trumpet.com/trends. Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations, as well as, of course, the King of the South, one of our most uh, uh, editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry's most recently updated books, The King of the South. That's all the time we have for today. We, again, encourage you to email us your thoughts on the program. Again, that email address is letters at the trumpet.com. We read everyone, so we appreciate when you write in. We thank our panel. Once again, Richard Palmer. Josue Michels, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. We thank Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for their engineering and production. And we thank you for listening to the Week in Review, and we look forward to being back with you on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.